you know, we've gone from sort of laughing at people using AI in the American courts and, you know, citing fictitious cases to all of a sudden it's like, no, this is a great idea. We can just automate the court system. Like, oh, no. Have we not seen Terminator? This does not work. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was barrister Alan Robertshaw from a recent Second Saturday Art and Justice online gathering. What follows is a recording of that call, during which I was joined by Institute of Art and Law Assistant Director Emily Gould to host a conversation about AI policy from the UK to the US. This AI stuff has been in the press, in the news, week in, week out for uh, weeks and months. Um, but it's only really in the last few weeks I've finally managed to do some a, a bit of more of a deep dive into it and to try and see what's going on in the world and what the various regulators are thinking. So, um, so I am just going to impart to you some of the interesting things I've been finding out in the last couple of weeks, really. Um, and I wanted to start by... Um, just describing really briefly what I have understood to be, um, and this is really top level, but um, the sort of historical development of AI, just in a, in a few sentences, really, um, over the last 50 or so years, because I just found, I, li I listened to um, a debate at Oxford University, I think it was, it's called the TORCH, the TORCH is the acronym, I'm, I can't quite remember, Humanities is the last word, but I can't quite remember what the uh, acronym stands for. But there was a really interesting debate um, involving a musician, um, a writer, um, a kind of media person and a mathematician. And they were talking about the various sort of use cases for AI and what they're doing in their own practices. Um, and they were discussing a little bit about sort of the history of AI. And I hadn't really understood this development before. And I, I just found it really interesting. So the beginnings of AI really are thought, well, in, in the modern age, I guess you would say, um, are sort of thought to be really around. So it's kind of three phases. So the first phase started um, with Alan Turing, really, in the 1950s and the beginnings of computers, of, you know, what we now know um, as computers. And Things were then obviously much more rudimentary than than they have come to be uh, in this day and age. And um, it was really, you know, humans creating machines which could crunch the numbers, which could give us answers to sort of clear questions um, and, you know, answers which required some sort of computational data crunching. So that was the first phase in the 1950s. And then the second phase started in around the 1980s when we see the, the beginnings of the development of what we would now call machine learning, whereby machines are um, creating models using certain data, and then they're able to make decisions on the basis of that data um, and to, to make predictions. Um, so there are you know, more and more uh, wider use cases for the technology. So that's the second phase in the 1980s. And then the third phase, um, which is really, we're talking about the last sort of 10 years, really, 10 to 15 years. Um, and here we've seen the emergence of what we would call deep learning. So a much more complex form of machine learning, um, usually using something called neural networks. So machines being created to operate in the same way as the human brain, to mimic the human brain. So we've gone from phase one, machines doing what humans tell them, to phase two, machines learning to make decisions themselves, being fed that data and, and having, you know, their, their, their own, developing their own methods to um, make decisions, phase two, to phase three, where machines can act like the human brain um, and can sometimes act unpredictably. Um, and within that third phase, we also have um, this proliferation of uh, what's called GAN technology. So generative adversarial networks, which involve 
so far as I understand it, um, emphasizing that I'm not in any way uh, a technology expert or a scientist. Um, but these GAN networks, as I understand them, involve two algorithms, essentially, one called a generator, one called a discriminator. And the generator is trained to um, create certain uh, outputs or images in response to prompts. And then the discriminator is fed huge quantities of data relating to the, the prompted work that the uh, generator is working on. And then the discriminator compares what the generator produces against the, the data fed into the discriminator and rejects those which are not sufficiently similar until a match is found. And so um, that technology was used in the creation of um, what's often talked about as the first uh, AI piece of artwork, um, this sort of mashup of a portrait called Edmund de Bellamy, uh, created by this French collective group uh, called Obvious. Um, and that is the whole that that, that whole um, little episode was was quite controversial as it turns out. So that work was sold by I think it's by Christie's for something like forty three times its predicted estimate. So it was estimated at ten thousand and sold at four hundred and thirty thousand and some dollars. But it turned out, and we might come on to think about this when we when we sort of maybe talk a bit more about copyright and IP issues. Turned out that the algorithm that this group used was created by a, a another person, a third party, um, a guy called, what's his name? Robbie Barrett was his name, a 19-year-old kind of computer whiz. He created this code and he'd made it uh, open source. Um, and so they then took this code, didn't do that much with it, fed lots of data into it, something like 15,000 portraits, and then came up with this kind of a, a mashup using this GAN generative adversarial network technology. Um, and then they sold this work. And there, wa there wasn't really much or any, I think, recognition of um, the the creator of the underlying source code. And so, yeah, some some interesting copyright issues coming into play. To go back to the to the history where I started, so these three phases um, of the development of, of AI technology. So we have the first phase, the basic computers. Then we have the machine learning. So machine learning was used for... Um, and you know, still is used for um, sort of decision making, which requires some form of, sort of discrimination. So when I say discrimination, I'm not using that word. Uh, I'm, I'm meaning, you know, discriminating between different kinds of data. And um, so um, and, and predicting. Um, so it might be used for, say, tailoring marketing to individuals or it might be used to make decisions about somebody's suitability for a job or for being being given a loan or something like that. Um, and so in that second phase, the machine learning phase, humans, programmers, were effectively telling machines what to do. And we might not know the answers that they will give during this stage, but we know basically how they got there because humans have, you know, humans have sort of determined what that what that process is and created the code. In the new phase, the deep learning phase, computers are learning and developing their own code through these complex learning techniques. So the difference really is that not only do we not know what the answers are going to be, we don't necessarily know how the machines get to them. So we have this element of unpredictability. And I think it's that that has made humans a bit scared. And that that has, you know, sort of raised the heckles of the regulators and made people think, even those involved in developing the technology, think, OK, we need some way of regulating this, because if it gets into the wrong hands, then who knows what might happen. Um, and another another sort of distinction between that machine learning phase and then the, the deep learning phase um, we can sort of um, we can um, we can equate those two different phases to the 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 different tests which are applied to determine whether a machine is intelligent. And um, so apparently the the test that used to be used in the earlier days was a test called the the, the Turing test, for Alan Turing. 
And that said that if you can't tell the difference between um, the response that you get from a machine and what you would expect from a human, then that machine is intelligent. That, that was the test. The more recent test, the Lovelace test, after Ada Lovelace, the, the um, amazing um, sort of early mathematician. So the Lovelace test says, if you ask a machine for a response, you ask it to create something or to give you an answer, um, and you can't explain how it has come up with that answer, then that machine is intelligent. So there's that subtle difference between, you know, um, you can't tell the difference between um, the the actual response, whether that would come from a machine or a human, to you don't know how it actually comes to that answer. So that's what we're talking about in the in the modern age of AI. And there was this really great example I heard in this debate that I listened to um, from the, the the Torch Group, um, given by and it's quite a famous one actually. But um, it was Marcus de Sotoy, who is a mathematics professor. I think he's at the University of Oxford. I think. Um, don't quote me on that. But anyway, he's a maths professor, and he gave this story about. Um, he, he told the story about um, one of the first sort of demonstrations of what um, a deep learning algorithm can do um and it was in the context of the game go um so the game go i don't know much about it but it's apparently it's more complex to program than a chess game and um so they created this algorithm that could play go and it was called alpha go and then they pitted human against machine so they got the top go player in the world to play a game of go against alpha go the algorithm and there were apparently seven rounds of this um seven rounds of, of this this game it goes on for a very long time i think like chess i think i guess and apparently in the second round of the game the machine made a move which was completely unpredictable which was the the comments so people were commentating on this match and and this was this was a completely kind of untraditional move, and it's a move that a human just wouldn't have made. So it was, you know, technically a bad move. And so they they, they were, you know, all the commentators were saying, "Well, this is, you know, uh, the the beginning of the end. This is the the demise of the machine." So of course, the human's going to come out on top. But then you can probably guess where the story's going. So they carried on with the game, and then it turns out at the end of the game that this inverted commas bad move was the move that won the computer the game. So um, what Marcus de Soto was saying was that you know this was completely unpredictable and it wasn't something that a human would have done, and it showed the way that the machine, unfettered by human brain patterns by the way a human would have reacted could do something new and surprising um and again back to that that notion of the fact that it's this kind of unpredictability of what these ai um machines can come out with that that is the kind of the new development um so in terms of the um the the use of ai um, within the creative industries. I mean, we all know, we've all, you know, had a go on chat GPT and got AI to write essays for us. And we know that it can pr produce visual works of art. It can write poetry. It can make music. And I think in the earlier days of AI, it there was a lot of positivity within um, the creative sectors about it. And, you know, it was a uh, a new tool which promised a new world of opportunity for creative expression. Um, and it was, it, I think it's only really been relatively recently in the last sort of two years or so that I think the the tenor of the, the conversation has changed somewhat within um, certainly for a lot of artists. Um, and I think uh, one of the big changes has been the proliferation of these huge sort of sets of training data because the algorithms have got to learn um and so that the you know they can adapt the code and they do this by um being fed lots of existing data and lots of that data certainly within the visual arts um you know comprises 
copyright works. And whereas in the past, artists using AI would perhaps have created their own very limited data sets um, uh, and, you know, sort of specifically curated sets. Now there are, you know, companies out there putting together, creating these kind of mass marketed sets of training data. And um, and now, you know, we can all go and use one of these algorithms, you know, using a text prompt to create as a new visual work. And I think it's that massive proliferation which has caused real concern um, because, you know, artists are feeling like they the, the situation is out of control and they cannot control their own works within this whole ecosystem. So um, what are, just more broadly then, what are some of the major sort of risk areas? Well, I've already touched on that one of copyright and uh, the, the discussions around copyright and, and, and AI um, generally revolve around two areas, the inputs and the outputs. So from the input perspective, the way that the machine is learning is by having, as I mentioned, access to all of these existing images. And it's, so it's learning the patterns of the images to create its own new versions. Um, and artists are very concerned that their works are being used in this way as part of this data, training data set without their consent. And it's fairly clear that this is happening on a fairly wide scale. And it's led to some cases which are going through the courts. I think Stephanie might mention a couple of those a little bit later. So that's on the input side. On the output side, the question is, if we have a work of art created by AI, can that work have copyright? Can it be protected by copyright? Um, and if so, who might own that copyright? We might come back to, to tease out those questions more a little bit later. But for the moment, I just wanted to throw out some of these kind of risk areas. Other areas outside of um, sort of copyright and IP law, privacy and data protection, you know, are AI models using personal data without necessary consents? Um, transparency, you know, um, the, the problem of deep fakes and, you know, we see this all the time, don't we, on social media and how do we know when we're looking at something, when we're hearing something, how do we know whether it's been created by a human or by AI? Does that matter? Does it matter? And, and why might it matter? Um, another area really interesting, which is going to have a lot of legal, legal implications, I think, um, is the problem of bias and bias amplification. So if an algorithm is trained on a set of data, and then it produces a new work on the basis of that data. Evidently, whatever biases um, are in that existing data are going to be amplified by what comes out at the end of that process. Um, there is a fascinating uh, case study um, by a researcher at MIT, and she's done a TED talk actually about this. I haven't listened to it yet, I haven't had a chance, but. Um, she was working with facial analysis software, and her name is Joy Wallamwini. Um, I think you might pronounce it. There's a Forbes article about this. So she was, um, so she was, she was working on this 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 uh, facial analysis software, and she noticed that the software didn't detect her face. And she, um, she's a black woman working in America at MIT, and she wondered what was going on um and i believe i read in a story somewhere she then um put on a white mask and was immediately recognized by the software so clearly the training data that that this uh that had been used with this facial analysis software had not had access to a broad range of skin tones i mean that is just one very um disturbing and you know worrying example and when we're talking about, you know, artworks, um, the, lots of biases that we know are going to, you know, be coming through um, in in some of the outputs of, of some of these algorithms. So um, how are various jurisdictions addressing these risks? 
Um, I'm just going to have a quick skip through what's been going on in the UK. It's been quite an interesting journey so far. Um, the UK has very much tried to position itself as pro-innovation to try and encourage AI businesses to think that the UK is going to be a really good place to be operating. They're going to be able to do so without too much red tape um, and bureaucracy, and they're going to be able to push their businesses forward um, in the UK. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the, the basic backdrop. Um, looking at the copyright issues, so UK copyright law differs in some quite important ways when we're thinking about this context from um, US law. So in the US, I think at the moment, the main argument which AI companies are putting forward for their use of copyright works in training their algorithms will be based on some kind of a fair use argument. And fair use is a fairly... Um, a fairly sort of broad, fluid, flexible concept. We don't have an exact equivalent or, or even a, a near equivalent, really, in the UK. So under the UK legislation, um, a copyright owner has an exclusive right to, um, uh, to, to use their copyright work in, in a certain way and to prevent other people from... Um, doing certain acts with that work. So most, most commonly, of course, copying it, reproducing it, um, subject to certain very specific exceptions. Um, and one of those exceptions, which has been a part of copyright law in the UK since 2014, when we had some, um, some reforms that came in from the EU, has been an exception for text and data mining. So text and data mining is key to the operation of an AI business. Um, because um, those businesses need access to lots of data to train the algorithms. Um, and so that existing uh, TDM, I'm going to call it for, for, from now on because it's a bit of a mouthful, so TDM, text data mining exception, from 2014 was only for non-commercial purposes. So it wouldn't really work for AI companies developing their algorithms. So what the UK government did was to say, well, we know that AI companies are going to have to work in this way, are going to have to mine for text and data, and we know that that's going to involve some copyright works potentially. So we're going to expand that existing TDM exception to cover all kinds of uses, including commercial uses. And you rights holders out there, you you know, you people owning those copyrights, we're sorry, but that's that's you're not you're not gonna have any right to object to that. That's that's the way we're going in the spirit of our pro-innovation approach to, to AI generally. So as you can imagine, that provoked something of an outcry um, within the creative industries, uh, the music, publishers, visual arts. Um, there was real opposition to this policy. Um, DAX, which is the Design and Artists Copyright Society um, in the UK, did a lot of studies about this. And they talked about that exception um, applying to you know, commercial uses having far-reaching consequences. There was um, an MP in Parliament who, who um, did a really, really powerful speech um, on behalf of the creative industries um in opposition to the government policy and she had done her own studies and she talked to one visual artist who had said that uh, almost 600 of his copyright images um, have been scraped off the internet for training in on ai platforms and he'd not received a single penny um and she talked about the fact that if the uk proceeded with this broad exception um, it will be tantamount to placing thousands of jobs within the creative sector under threat. So um, with that backlash, the government decided to change tack. Um, so that, that original announcement was in, so everything's moving very quickly. That was in June 2022. And then by November, the government said, OK, we hear you. Um, we're not going to do that. We're not going to proceed with that plan. 
So it was a, a pretty much a um, you know a, a one one eighty about face. Um, that was November last year. By March this year, we have this big report by the government's chief scientific officer, which seems to be moving slightly back towards the pro-innovation stance. So I'm just going to read a tiny bit of what what he said in his report. And it was even called a pro-innovation regulation of technology review. And he says there is a 12 to 24 month window to make the UK one of the top places in the world to build foundational AI companies. And he and then he goes on to say that other countries are moving faster. We need to make sure we have a um, friendly regulatory environment. We need to provide clarity. So what he proposes is that the government should work with the creative industries to produce a code of practice. So it's a code of practice to address the concerns. Um, And he does want text and data mining um, on the input side to be enabled. And on the output side, he wants to make sure that works can be protected by copyright. So the government responded to that report, uh, basically sort of agreeing with its approach. So the UK Intellectual Property Office has now said that it's going to work on the production of this code of practice, um, which is going to be sort of basically fairly pro-innovation still, but is going to provide some um, backstop rights to copyright owners. So that work is in progress at the moment. There is a quite a large group of um, experts working on it. They have um, some terms of reference, which you can, you, they're, they're all public. You can read on the government website. Um, and so that, yeah, that work is going on. So that's on the copyright side. More broadly, um, the government produced this white paper in at the same time, really, in March uh, this year. Um, again, it's called a pro-innovation approach to AI regulation white paper. And it's it's very much um, a framework. But what it's, I, and I won't go into loads of detail now because I've probably talked enough, but just to describe the basic approach, because it's quite different from the approach in uh, a number of different, uh, in a number of other jurisdictions, including the EU. And I think that is partly by design. The UK is trying to distinguish itself um, from our EU neighbours. And so what is being proposed in the white paper, I think that for me, the two key takeaways from it are, one, that there is no apparent desire for legislation in the short term, for a sort of legislative overhaul. And two, that there doesn't seem to be a move towards any sort of central regulatory body for AI. On the contrary, the government is sort of effectively giving responsibility to various different sector bodies to regulate the way in which AI is used within their own sector. So those sectors would be, say, the financial sector, so the financial conduct authority, um, the medical sector, um, so that the existing regulators would regulate there, the, the CMA, the Competition and Markets um, uh, Authority, they will look at sort of trade generally. Um, so it's very much a sector-based focus and based on principles rather than legislation. Now, in this white paper, there was very little, I mean, I, haven't, I have to confess, I have not read every word from a very quick look and reading commentary about it, there's very little on the creative industries specifically. And when they give examples, they do give sort of examples of, you know, case studies and and particular use cases. They tend to be um, in the scientific arena or the medical arena, agriculture, not much about the creative sector. Um, There's no sort of comprehensive definition of what AI is. Um, or what they perceive it to be. Um, and they they prefer to have a kind of a, a very sort of fluid approach. And they say that the two characteristics of AI are, and, and the, the two words, are adaptivity and autonomy. So adaptivity meaning that AI systems are trained, so they develop um, and they develop to um, infer and to 
uh, to infer patterns and to make connections, um, which are um, which are not easily discernible to humans. That's adaptivity. And autonomy means that they can start to make decisions without the express intent or ongoing control of a human. Um, so that's kind of where we are. And and there are, I mean, it's a fairly lengthy document, this white paper. Um, and it's based around sort of these broad characteristics and principles um, that there's been quite a bit of discussion and some criticism of this sectoral focus because um, if you're having different regulators regulating different sectors, there you know there is there's a risk in that. There's room for things to fall through the cracks, for there to be loopholes, for the regulators to potentially take slightly different approaches. Um, there might be overlapping sets of regulations so if you're you know if your business does it has a kind of range of activities then maybe you have more than one regulator what happens if they have different approaches um so the gut to mitigate um the risk and the criticism uh the government is proposing to have some kind of a central role um so to provide sort of cross-sectoral collaborative support it's talking about having this joint regulatory sandbox where all the different sectors can basically try out things in some sort of central arena um and there's also a need for international coordination and collaboration so where the uk has got to at the moment the the, the latest um sort of uh, developments have been that the what is kind of coming out of the government, despite the very sort of light touch approach, um, which comes through from the white from the white paper, is a slightly more kind of serious stance, which suggests that maybe there might be a, a slight move towards um greater regulation and and at least a an acknowledgement that that might be something that that comes um, in the future, slightly tighter rules, um, but certainly still uh, very much trying to sort of position the UK as somewhere which will be a you know a good place for uh, these technology companies. Um, and just last month, I think it was in a summit meeting with um, President Biden. Prime Minister Sunak talked about the UK hosting the first global summit on AI safety. So um, lots happening in the UK, certainly. Um, and as I say, trying to distinguish itself, I think, in some ways from the EU, where just very briefly, and this is where I'll end, I think. Um, so the you, you may have heard of the EU AI Act. So there is a specific standalone piece of legislation which has been drafted in the EU. Um, it's been something that's been discussed for some years. As early as December 2017, um, the EU set out some legislative priorities for AI. So it's been a, you know, a, a, a project which has been long in the gestation. And it's at a quite exciting stage now because... Um, it has been a, a draft, the latest draft has been signed off by the European Parliament. That was just in June this year. And it now goes into, it's quite a tortuous process to get a, piece of, a new piece of EU legislation, but it now goes to what they call trilogue discussions. So discussions between um, the Parliament, the Commission and the Council, um, which are expected to come to their final conclusions around the turn of the year. So not that long. And then the act is intended to be or expected to be fully operational and effective sometime during 2026. Um, but the act, the, e the EU act is a much more kind of um, comprehensive approach towards um, AI. Um, and so we have this one act, which is cross-sectoral. Um, so it's not, you know, we're not looking at individual sectors and it's it's on a risk based approach. So there will be a heavier burden of obligations, the higher the risk is perceived to be. So there are some AI applications which will be banned because they are thought to be too risky um, and they are 
AI systems which are considered a threat to people. So things which will threaten people's fundamental rights, they'll have health and safety issues, um, or they might um, try to manipulate people. So things like social scoring, classifying people uh, based on their behaviour or socioeconomic status, that kind of data, real-time um, systems to uh, identify people by biometric markers, these kinds of systems and, and facial recognition. Um, there may be some exceptions there. I think that's an area under discussion, but they have been held to be very high risk. And then you have high-risk systems which might negatively affect people. Um, so the decisions made on the basis of those systems might um, affect people's lives. So things like critical infrastructure or um, job recruitment, those kind of systems, um, automotive vehicles come within that high risk bracket. Um, and then there are areas which are considered to have limited risk. Um, and that's where the kind of chatbot systems, things like that would fall there. And then there are some areas where the risk is is so minimal that they're not actually going to fall within the regulation. They fall outside the ambit of the regulation. And that would be things like AI-enabled video games or spam filters, very sort of simple applications. Um, so, yeah, really interesting piece of legislation, much discussion about it. And, uh, yeah, many developments still to come, really. All of this stuff is very much in, in its infancy. Um, so, Stephanie, I don't know if I can hand over you to, to do a quick skip through what's happening in the U.S. and maybe some of those cases. Absolutely. And of course, in the U.S., we are known as a litigious society. And so we have a half dozen or so lawsuits that are already pending. Many of them come out of the same law firm in California, and they uh, range from programmers to artists. And what's interesting, Emily, you brought up Robbie Barrett. I have been reading about that as well. And what was interesting that I had read was that his initial response was, yes, you can use my code, no problem. But then when they were on the cusp of having that auction and the price wasn't even reaching the, the skyrocket that it did, he was already posting on social media, like on Twitter posts, uh, am, am I the only one who thinks that there's an issue with them making money off my code and not giving me credit? And so it was an issue of what he had said was originally represented to him as uh, an open source model that they were creating. And then when they monetized it, then he had the problem. And so that kind of goes to the point of the the J. Doe versus OpenAI and GitHub and Microsoft. That was the first lawsuit, I believe, filed in California in November 2022. In that, what's interesting uh, is that GitHub at some point has made it known that they adopt an opt-out policy. And the caveat to that is that during Senate hearings in the U.S., the big point that artists made was it should be an opt-in policy, not an opt-out. You're putting too much of an onus on artists. And I think that's such a point that really needs to be highlighted. Yeah, that's something, yeah, that's something I didn't go into, but that if an opt-in policy effectively means that you can't, that, that's licensing, isn't it? You know, you don't get to use my work unless I say so on my terms and we negotiate a fee. And that's what the collective licenses, um, you know, over here, are collective licensing agencies, sorry, I should say, that's what they want to see happen. That's how they want it to work. But the thing about opt out, Stephanie, have you any idea how that would work? Because that's what I'm I, I have no idea. How on earth could that work? It, it just seems so unworkable. It, 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 I feel like it's just them trying to cover themselves and it really doesn't give any power to the people whose work is being used. The other point uh, that I was going to bring up when I was listening to the most recent Senate hearing on AI, uh, one of the expert witnesses was pointing out that the UK is so much the uh, advanced technology entity 
on AI that it is seen as the uh, competitor to the U.S., which I thought was very interesting. And, and we are on such different sides that you have laid out how much has been done for the last several years in the U.K., whereas the U.S. is still in Senate hearings talking about how we have not even grappled with social media and the problems there and that they want to try to get ahead of it and we're already behind. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in the US recently, but it not much sort of practical progress, it seems, I think. There's been um, a task force on AI policy that's proposed and being created. There's been privacy consumer protection framework that's been proposed, but many people are saying that judges are going to be making the policy the way the lawsuits are going, whether or not they settle. Between California and Delaware, it's where we have these suits that are really touching the heart of what you were pointing to about the training data. With Getty, too, I wondered if you had had any um, thoughts on the, the suit in the UK, because there's a mirror suit uh, uh, by Getty uh, in the U.S. And so I wondered, like, I, I wasn't sure where that stood and if you had any thoughts or had seen anything. I, yeah, I thought you might ask me that, Stephanie. I'm really sorry. I couldn't find anywhere. I didn't have a long to look, but I couldn't find any papers about it. So it doesn't seem to be much out there at all. There's one claim and then it's all gone very quiet. Yeah, that's what I'd noticed too. And mm. I wasn't sure if it was just because I wasn't able to access. Yeah, and, no, and I don't think much has happened. Yeah. Very interesting. You had sent me that one article about the elections. And I think that really kind of frames a lot of this conversation is that oh, yeah. there are yeah. so many elections coming up in 2024. And it really is pushing people to deal with a lot of issues. And I, I think, you know, certainly art issues and art cases are kind of at the low risk realm, but we are going to be uh, seeing so much legislation, I think, just because people don't want these elections coming in uh, without control. Yeah. So should we describe that article? Should we describe that article? Because it was yeah. fascinating. So it was about the fact the, from what I remember, the essence of it was that um, the author, he was saying that the AI companies don't really spend anywhere near enough research and money and investment and resource um, moderating content. So it was it was more it was about, you know, fake news, really, in the context of elections. And it was saying that. That because there is this push towards regulation in the West, that's where they are concentrating their kind of efforts to try and mitigate risk and to try and you know meet the demands of that oncoming regulation, which and they only have limited resource to do that. So they're not hence they're not doing it in countries like um, the Far East, like the Middle East, like Africa, where therefore, um, you know, fake news is absolutely, you know, just exponential and will get worse because unless they're forced to do that, unless they're forced to have a certain amount of resource dedicated to content moderation globally, there's going to be this imbalance of just going to do it where they have to in Western countries, which are regulating them. That, I think that was the essence of it, wasn't it? Yes. And I can't remember if it was in that article or somewhere else, they were pointing out that, say, Meta, 90% of the users are outside of the West. Yes, they were. Yeah. And yet the majority of the content control is being done in the West. It's very disproportionate to the usership. Definitely. Alan, we want to hear about your run-ins with Getty. I've just noticed your chat. It's sort of related. This is just um, I, I, GDPR. I probably can't mention that this was for the artless people. But um, they had some issues with, you know, just illustrations on their website. And, of course, Getty have that software that trolls the Internet to spot images that they own the IP in. Um, and this was an interesting one because we challenged something on the grounds that, yes, we'd used a photograph they had the IP in, but it was whether the photograph itself actually had been transformative enough because it was a photograph of somebody else's artwork. 
and what we ran as the defence was, well, actually, you are in breach of copyright yourself because this is just a photograph of somebody else's artwork and your photograph is not transformative enough that you've got a new IP in it. And actually, if you do try all this on, we'll drag in the original artists and say, do you know Getty are claiming copyright on effectively your work? And just, you know, throw the cat among the pigeons so they discontinued. Because, you know, obviously they... You know, they'd have somebody go. I don't know where they'd got the images from, but it was somebody going around a gallery taking photographs of art. Uh, there was a bit of an issue actually, because one of them was a Cara Walker, and it, it, it's it, there was an argument as to whether because you know her silhouette worked, and it was because effectively it was around a room, so arguably that was three D art and a photograph of it. You know, is that transformative enough? But I thought there was enough, and I I, and I think this was just one where they couldn't take the risk of establishing a precedent that they didn't own the IP and lots of their own things that they were charging people for. So, that, um, that, that, yeah, 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 so, and it, and it turned out, because I, you know, I sort of said, look, you need to go through your all your website now. And and, and, they, were, and they were like literally, you know, because they've been running for years. They were going, we've got thousands of these. You know, and it was like, shit, where do we find alternatives? Uh, but in the end, like I say, we were quite robust in our defense and they and they did drop it. Um, and they've just, you know, from now on, on, from now on, they are sourcing either copyright free material or stuff where they're getting licenses from other people. Um, but, this, you know, but this is the thing, you know, because obviously we all talk about art and we all write articles. Um, and generally speaking, you've probably got a, a fair use or a fair dealings defense, you know, a lot of the time, you know, if you want to talk about some artwork and, you know, and you don't reproduce it full scale and it's just there to sort of say, isn't this pity? And, you know, and I think most artists wouldn't care. But of course, a lot of artists don't own the IP in their own work. They've either licensed it or they've assigned it to somebody else. And it's the, we have this in, you know, we have this in the music business all the time where people get publishing deals and the publishing company owns the IP. I mean, famously, David Bowie was once sued for sounding too much like David Bowie by the company that owned his back catalogue. <laughs> this is like you know, so it's all it's all very complex. It reminds me of a very very different story, nothing to do with copyright at all, but an awful story that was in the paper last week about um there's apparently this is not that uncommon, a kind of a scam, although scam seems like too trivial a word to use for it, but um whereby people are so this this woman got a phone call on her mobile phone from a voice which was her daughter's voice telling her she'd been kidnapped and she had to hand over some money and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was a long story. But it turned out that the voice was an AI, you know, mimic of her daughter's voice, but it was that close that she thought it was her daughter. And, yeah, so the police obviously got involved. But, I mean, just so frightening. It's scary. I mean, that's, you know, because that's the old, what called the Spanish prisoner scam. I mean, that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but, it, you know, this is the thing. It's the technology. Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just people using mm, technology exactly. to do things yeah. that have been around forever. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the I find, because I was a bit confused as to you, because I, I do not use AI at all. Uh, but, you know, I do those things with Dan Chensmith, and he uses AI a lot for, like, generating thumbnails for the videos. And I didn't realise, because I was going, hey, where have we got, a you know, where's there a picture of, like, Prince Harry looking, like, angry or yelling at people or Meghan Markle pulling and, and it's all AI. And what is really scary is, to me, he literally, because he demonstrated how he did it, and it was stuff like, you know, chat GP, here's what we're talking about, produce a suitable YouTube algorithm-friendly thumbnail. And it was, boof, there you go. <laughs> because yeah. I mean, we we chat to the people at Google because you know we're, we're YouTube partners, and they have no idea how their own algorithm works. At yeah, all. that's the thing. This is the weird thing they were saying. You know, like, well, we've got a video here that's doing really well, and it's getting put to the top of the list, and it's appearing every recommend. So, what do we do to tweak that? We, we don't know. And you literally get an email. You know, when you monitor the analytics, it will say this video is doing particularly well. Have a look at the video and try and work out why this one is more popular. And it's like it's down to you to try and analyze because they they cannot tell you. All they can tell you is they're currently analyzing around 20 billion data points. I mean, one thing that really freaked me out, I recorded a video about um, you know, the thumbs up emoji case where somebody had responded to an email with a thumbs oh, up. Oh yeah. And that had been deemed to be accepting the contract mm -hmm. rather than acknowledging the email. 
And I just uploaded it. You can always tell when I've done my own thumbnails because I just do them in Keynote as PowerPoint slides. <laughs> just so they're really boring. But it sort of when it suggests a thumbnail, um, it obviously knew the video was about thumbs up. And the suggestion for the thumbnail was me in the video putting my thumbs up. So it obviously knew we were talking about thumbs up. And it had analyzed the video and it knew that I had my thumbs up. And that was really, really strange to me that it... Because I, I still think things like ChatGP are just very elaborate predictive text programs. But clearly, like you say, with all the deep learning, they are going a bit further than that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're talking here, you know, they're going to do some medical screening now, aren't they, here? Um, to, to get clear the backlog, they're going to use AI for CAT scans. And yeah, which is amazing. Treatment. I mean, that is really amazing. I think uh, breast cancer and um, yeah. a few other cancers. So I was, I was listening to that. So... They still will. Have, so normally you have to have two radiographers reviewing scans. So they're going to remove one of them and the initial scan will be done by AI. But there still will have to be a human that makes the final decision. What I find interesting, though, is um, there's this, there was this phenomenon that they noticed with people in the war analyze, and still today analysing radar and sonar images. Because, you know, sonar in real life isn't the sort of big sweeping thing going ping, ping, ping. If you've ever seen a real sonar plot from a submarine, it just looks like white noise. It's just like a, a it's like a waterfall going. Psh. And what's interesting is they found that humans can actually spot things that are beyond the limits of detection and actually fall below the signal to noise ratio. And it's interesting that machines just go, that's just noise. But humans can spot things in that. And they don't know how we do this but technically speaking it should be impossible because there isn't enough information in the plot to actually differentiate between what's real and what is just noise but human i'll, I'll, I'll google what the ph phenomena is called but it's something that because you know they're obviously they use a lot of they're looking at using a lot of ai in the military you know autonomous drones and things like that and we know that gchq use a lot actually gchq is really weird because they use you know, they don't actually listen to your phone call. They're not interested in what the content of your phone call is because you've been talking in code, but what they want to do is spot the patterns of who's talking to whom. And what's very interesting is GCHQ, they employ hundreds of, as they call it, uh, I think, I'm really, trying to think the phrase they use, it was something like neurodiverse. In other words, they get lots of people with autism and say, right, basically, you're really good at pattern detection just like have a route through this and tell her and tell us what how this terrorist network is operating and they can sort of go oh well actually this guy is clearly having a conversation with this guy and this guy and this guy so you know i think the human brain i mean what i like it because one of my friends works in ai and she is adamant they, they don't call it ai they refuse to call it ai because it's not artificial intelligence but one of the things she is developing is software to teach kids with autism because they find it easier to relate mm. to a computer sometimes than the people. And they're saying they're learning more about how human brains work than they're actually learning about how the machines are thinking. The machines thinking bit is boring. That's just lots of coding. <laughs> but what they're saying is fascinating is actually what we're learning about how humans work and how we perceive things. And I, that, to me, that's the most interesting aspect that's coming out of AI. I, is we're learning about ourselves because for the first time ever well actually i would argue not because you know my animal sentient stuff but okay for the for, for the second time ever we now have another intelligence to compare our intelligence to and we can sort of start looking at yeah. you know, what is consciousness because you know there's all the sort of chinese box you know room experiments and all you know all that sort of thing so i think it's fascinating in what it, it throws up about you know what is consciousness? What is intelligence? There's this new sort. There's this new paper come out now about whether the entire universe is conscious, which I've always thought you know maybe it is. It's complex enough, and you know they said if you apply the idea of consciousness to everything, I think it's called panpsychia or something, and they said oh that's one explanation for the famous double split experiment. We don't need to get into the multiverse. We don't need to get into anything like that. Basically, photons are going. Hmm, which shots will I go through? I think I'll do this one today. Yeah, I've read something about trees and whether trees are 
um, somehow sort of conscious because of all the amazing stuff they do and con- the connections between them. Yeah, they, they, they do communicate because, yeah. you know, they yeah, release yeah, pheromones, yeah. which, you know, cause trees to do it. Well, it's, you know, it's the classic thing about, you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch. You know, that's because apples that are rotting release a chemical that causes the other apples to rot. But trees also release chemicals. So if there's a particular disease in the area or a particular sort of predator that feeds on trees or something like that, they release a chemical that causes all the other trees to to release this chemical. Amazing. Now, I'm sure they know way more than we know. Well, Venus flytraps can count. Because that's and there is an explanation as to there's a very boring, mundane, mechanical explanation as to how they're doing it. But Venus flytraps, it's, it, it, it requires a lot of energy to close. So it yeah, I've read something about this. Yeah, yeah. So they actually they don't close immediately. They've got to trigger. They've got something has to trigger like the sensor three times before it will close. Yeah, so how yeah, are, yeah. How are they counting that? And there, yeah, like I said, there is a very yeah. boring. Yeah you know, just pure physics explanation. But I like to think they're going, mm, okay, one, that's your first chance. <laughs> Two, you're really pushing it. You're really pushing it. Yeah, and incidentally, Venus flytraps actually catch more fly- spiders than flies. So they should, they're misnamed. <laughs> well, so you both have inspired me. I had uh, heard about two artists who had done uh, NFTs on work that kind of uh, you you both kind of touched on points that they raise in their work. So one artist is Sophia Crespo. She does work uh, that deals with natural history and the AI, uh, how it can extract patterns from uh, the skeletal remains uh, seen under microscopes. So I, I suggest having a look at her work. And then also uh, this project called Lines and Bones by Iskra Velichkova. She does work on what we can learn from machines, what we're gathering from the AI that's teaching us about our own selves. Oh, nice. You have to exchange these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As you were saying that, I was thinking of another really, this is a lovely kind of natural environment one. Um, I think her name is Alex Daisy Ginsburg. Ginsburg. She's created um, a like a dawn chorus work, a dawn chorus installation yes. through use of AI. And it's really amazing. I think it was in one of the American art galleries um anyway alex daisy ginsburg i'm sure that's her name but it was gorgeous i i watched a tiny little clip on youtube and i'm really into birds and the dawn chorus is one of my favorite things so oh well please send the link i will i will will, definitely i know we need to um close up I, i just was curious your thoughts about because we already have a half dozen or so lawsuits in the u.s and so far, all I know of is the one in the UK. What do you think might be uh, the future for how artists in particular in the UK deal with these issues that US artists have already turned to lawsuits for? Do you think it'll be through the courts or what do you see? I think the collecting societies actually might kind of pull things together because I think this... Um, this code of practice that they're developing. Um, there are a lot of people uh, involved in that process and quite a few of them will be, um, you know, pro artists, will be trying to protect artists. So I'm really hopeful that um, a uh, that, that something will come out of that, which is, which does properly protect artists and gives them the opportunity to license their work and to um, be properly compensated for what the AI companies are doing with them. I'm hopeful that 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 might, you know, might come about. There will be links in the show notes to learn more. If you were intrigued by this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Or you can email me with comments at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere.
what are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.